I'm grateful for your word. I thank you that in Jesus, your kingdom has been made available to us. Lord, by your spirit, would you come and open our hearts, our eyes, our ears to hear your good news. And as the preacher this morning, I ask for your grace and help that I would be clear and true to your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. You may be seated. We might be tempted to want to jump to Christmas, but remember, Advent slows us down a bit. It's a season of expectant waiting. It's not Christmas yet. Despite what all the songs in the stores are saying, we're not there yet. John the Baptist was our focus last week, and this week, again, our focus is John the Baptist, but things are going from bad to worse for him. His last two years of living were not good. Now, we have it on really good um, historical evidence from Josephus, the Jewish historian, that when Herod arrested John the Baptist, he put him in a fort that is across the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan now. It's just a, a heap of rubble from the Romans destroying it, but it's called Machaerus, and there was a dungeon in it, and he spent his last two years there. I have a picture up here of Masada, which is the one fortress that was preserved, um, and that's actually, that little structure on it is the, uh, the ski lift, the cable car that brings you up to the top. It's very high, overlooks the Dead Sea. That's the Dead Sea off in the distance. Um, across that is Jordan on those other hills, and there was another fort like this, and it was um, where John the Baptist was locked up, and he was locked up there uh, because he had challenged King Herod's adulterous affair. And this was particularly hard for John. Remember, last week we saw that he wore uh, camel's hair and a leather belt, and he ate uh, wild honey and locusts. He was an outdoorsman. He lived outside. His ministry was by the Jordan River. And to be put in a dungeon and locked up would cause great hardship. And it would cause him to do some hard thinking. Did I get it right? Is this how it's supposed to look when the kingdom of God comes? I wonder for you and I, if you've experienced any kind of surprising hardship in this life that made you think, maybe this is not the way. Maybe I, I've, I've been a fool. I've not believed the right stuff. Maybe God isn't as good as they say in church and in the Bible. Maybe he can't be trusted. Why would he let this suffering happen? Is this what the kingdom of God is like? These kind of questions happen, happen naturally when we're in a time of suffering. And John the Baptist was locked up there, and he might not have even had a window. I don't know. But he did have uh, disciples that came and tended to his needs. And so he sent them to go, having heard what Jesus was doing, which was not what he wanted, having heard what he was doing, he sent his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one that we should be expecting or is there another Messiah coming? Or do we get it wrong? See, he thought that it was gonna be way more of a power takeover from the top down. Why am I sitting in prison as John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, if Jesus is the king and Messiah, why hasn't he fixed it all? Why is it not right now? You see, he sent messengers because he had a misunderstanding about the kingdom of God. And that's the subject I want to address this morning, the kingdom of God. Now, in Matthew, 20, excuse me, Matthew 4, verse 12, it says, when John the Baptist was arrested, then Jesus withdrew up to Galilee. He kind of he came out into the public with his ministry, and he preached the exact same message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's the same stuff that John the Baptist was saying, but they had two radically different understandings of how that was going to happen. So let me pause there for a minute and ask you this question. How would you define the kingdom of God? And what do you expect of it? What do you expect it to look like? What's, what's going to happen when the kingdom 
occurs? Is it occurring? We pray in the Lord's Prayer that, that things on earth would be like things in heaven, that his kingdom would come here. So what's that going to look like? Now, John the Baptist expected a fiery judgment as soon as possible. I mean, last week we saw his preaching where he said the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and he, he condemned the religious system, and he was saying, the king is coming now, get ready. And then Jesus showed up, but he was extending grace first. He didn't come with judgment and wipe out evil and then restore the remnant. He came with grace for everyone and welcomed anyone who wanted to come in and then said, later judgment is going to come. He said, I didn't come to judge. He actually explicitly said that. So um, last week we saw that repentance is returning to the Lord, not just turning from sin, but returning to the Lord. And today we're going to see that the kingdom is God's rule received. That last word is really important because God is ruling, but he's allowing people to choose to ignore his rule and to run in rebellion. God's kingdom happens where his rule is received by people. So that means that right in the same row, the kingdom of God could be in one person's life and not in the person's heart next to them. Because one is saying, you are my king and I submit to your rule and I will follow you. The other person could say, you're, you're a pretty good guy, God, but I'm, I'm pretty good too. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And that's a heart thing. I mean, Jesus said, write down, households are gonna be divided. So the kingdom of God right now is where God's rule is received. When Christ does return again, there won't be a choice anymore. He will rule and put all things in subjection under him. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus answers John the Baptist's question about are you the Messiah and the king we're expecting in an intentionally oblique way. You see, Jesus, once again, had to walk a fine line because he can't just come out and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king of all kings. Because what is a guy like Herod going to do right away? Right? Well, what happens to Jesus three years later is going to happen in his first month out in public. So he's got to kind of do a dance here because he's, he's actually addressing three different crowds. He's speaking to his cousin John the Baptist through the messengers. He's speaking to the crowd of people that's around him. And he's speaking to Herod, who is no fool and is paranoid enough to pay attention to everything going on. The prison guards know what they're talking about. He's watching what Jesus is saying and the reports coming back. In fact, later, Herod wanted to see Jesus because he was actually curious about this miracle worker. But one of the things that Jesus was trying to do here was trying to say, the kingdom is not going to come in the way that you think of kings and power and luxury and palaces. It's going to come in a different way. And he, rather than give words, because words are cheap, Jesus points to his actions. And he says, go tell my cousin John, go tell him what you see that I am doing. And as kind of a way to say to John, I'm actually fulfilling scripture, you just haven't quite interpreted it right. He quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 35, which we heard read today, and also the first verse from Isaiah 61. And he, he's describing what his ministry looked like. In Isaiah 35, um, just two, two of those verses we read, he says, describing the, the coming one, uh, the Messiah, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So there he's saying blind, deaf, lame, and mute all things that are actually literally being fulfilled in Jesus' day. He was doing those exact miracles. He also says that the poor will have good news preached to them, which is actually the beginning of uh, chapter 1 of Isaiah, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 61. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus himself, when he began preaching in Luke chapter 4, read that in his hometown and then said, this is fulfilled in me. You are hearing this and you are seeing it right now. Jesus was doing this stuff. He was bringing the kingdom. And then he says, and blessed are those who are not ashamed because of me, which is, I mean, it's kind of like a, it's a beatitude, it's a blessing, but kind of a backwards one, right? Blessed are you if you're not ashamed of me. Like, John, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I know it doesn't fit your expectations, but hang on, you'll see. Now, what we have here is this, again, the already but not yet. The kingdom has already come, but it has not yet been fully consummated. And so we get frustrated. We get frustrated sometimes because there's a difference in what we expect and what actually happens. We see it in bits and pieces, dimly, like in a, in a, a mirror, but a, a, a hazy mirror or something. Now, when he was dressing the crowds, as the messengers went back to John the Baptist, he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? I read something interesting, and I actually looked this up. When he talks about a reed shaken by the wind, it seemed like bizarre. Like, why would he say that? Well, you can, you can decide for yourself if you think this is what he's referring to. But again, being kind of oblique about it so it wasn't obvious that he was a king and he was challenging Herod, on the coins that Herod Antipas had printed in those days, on one side there was a wreath for um, the Caesar, and on the other side with his own name, Herod the Tetrarch, um, it had, uh, like, it stamped into the coin, it had reeds. In fact, for a cool $830, you can buy one of those because they've excavated a ton of them and they sell them on the internet. You can look it up. The Herod Antipas's coinage, you can see what they look like, but it had a reed on it. And so he makes this reference to, what did you go out to see? You know, the king and his currency? And he, and he mentions clothing. Did you expect to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No, no, those things are in palaces, right? He's, he's like, intentionally, he's being vague here. He's saying that his kind of kingdom is very different than Herod's kingdom or anything else that we've seen. He's a different kind of king. And then he says, and John the Baptist, he's the greatest man of all time up until the kingdom now. And the least in the new kingdom is greater than John. And he quotes he quotes from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. He, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 3.1. And Jesus says, this is the one it's spoken of. It also goes on and ends with a prophecy that Elijah will come back. And Jesus, in our text, says, and I tell you, John the Baptist is Elijah. But he's being vague here, and it says, let the person who has ears hear. You've got to understand, Jesus is intentionally speaking so that some will press in further and others will, will miss it. It'll go over their head. That's, that's in the interest of making it three years to the cross and not having it happen right away. So I want you and I to understand the Lord is coming, and Jesus is saying, I am he. I'm here. When he came, I'm the Lord. And it does lead to judgment. If you read more of Malachi 3, it talks about judgment before restoration, but with Jesus, he brings grace first. He extends grace first and says, judgment will come later. And I say, as we think through what the kingdom looked like in his moment, what about today? Does God heal today? Yeah, he does. Quite a bit, actually. But not as much as we want. Even the Apostle Paul had some kind of ailment, and three times he begged God to heal him of it, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so we get frustrated sometimes. In our healing ministry, we pray for God to heal, 
And sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes it seems partial. It can be frustrating to us. But I think there's also a, a spiritual and a figurative fulfillment as well as oftentimes a literal one. Or I should say, sometimes Jesus literally heals still, but oftentimes he does it in a spiritual way. So take, for instance, the blind. You, I mean, there are people who have their sight restored, but many don't. But then there are those who are blind of heart, and the eyes of their heart, so to speak, are opened, as the song used to say. In John chapter 9, a man born blind is healed by Jesus, and then later he has a conversation with Pharisees, and they say, well, what, are we blind too? And he says, well, if you admitted you were blind, then you could actually see clearly to be saved. But since you say you can see, you remain blind. See, it was a spiritual fulfillment, but it was also a physical fulfillment there. What about the lame, those who cannot walk? Sometimes God will heal people so they can walk. But in John 14, we hear Jesus say, I'm going somewhere. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there are people who have legs that work perfectly well, but they don't know where they're going. They don't walk well because they're not walking according to the kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm the way. I will show you the way to the Father. Follow me. Walk in the way. In fact, Christianity was first called the way when it when it appeared on the scene in Acts. It was called the way. It was a way to live and walk and be. Or lepers, they had skin ailments. God still heals skin ailments oftentimes today. However, the leprosy caused people to leave the community. They were outcast. They were living on the margins. They couldn't enter in because they were contagious. Jesus heals people and brings them back into community still today. What's interesting about the gospel is two people who have nothing worldly in common, if they both find salvation in Jesus, all of a sudden, have everything in common because they've recognized that salvation is in him and new friendships are formed, new community is formed. When these things are happening, the kingdom of God is breaking in. When somebody's heart is open to see the good news, when somebody learns to walk in the way of the kingdom, when somebody makes a connection with the community of faith and finds belonging in the church, in the visible body of Christ, the kingdom of God is breaking in. What about the deaf, those that can't hear? Well, sometimes God heals heals people's hearing in their ears. But also, the kingdom comes when people hear the voice of God. Have you heard it? Have you heard the Lord talking to you? I think of the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament when he lays down in the temple and God says, calls him, and he keeps going to the old priest Eli. And finally, Eli figures out what's going on. And he says, the next time you hear his voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm not calling you, Samuel. The Lord is. And I say to you, you are not a Christian unless you've heard the voice of the Lord. Not audibly necessarily, but the way that you've heard him is God calling you, speaking. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know their name. I call them out and they follow me. God still speaks today. Can you hear him? He gives hearing to the deaf. The deaf of heart, maybe we could say. What about the dead? The dead are raised. Now, there's only been one resurrection so far, and that's Jesus. But resuscitations happened in Jesus' day. They happened in Paul's day. Paul preached one time so long, a boy sitting in a window got tired and fell out and died. And he went down, and he prayed, and he brought him back to life and went back up and kept preaching until sunlight. I love that story. Paul was very smart and long-winded. I promised not to be long-winded. Um, but there's this idea of the, a, a dead man walking, of a dead heart being made alive by the gospel. People are born again, John 3. I mean, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom 
Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes you come alive, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the last one, which he took from Isaiah 61, is about the poor having good news proclaimed to them. You know, that's poor in spirit, according to Matthew. It's poor in money, according to Luke, but both are true. It's when you get to a place of being destitute, and whether it's a a physical destitute or a, a spiritual in your heart destitute, then you can hear the gospel. Then good news comes to you. As long as you have some way to save yourself, you, you just, it's not good news to you. When you get to the point where you actually are ready for someone to help and cry out, God is there. What we find around the world, both locally and globally, is poor people are coming to the gospel way faster than rich people. I mean, Jesus said it too, how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom, but the poor come in quickly. I can tell you in India, our mission of the week this week is Good Shepherd Church of India, and when David and I went there a couple years ago, we saw the Dalits, the outcasts, coming in large numbers to, to hear the gospel, to, be, to come to the medical clinics. They were planting churches. They're being educated now. They're, there's all kinds of stuff. I'll tell you more about it at our mission of the week, but it was those poor people that were so quick to receive the gospel because what else did they have? In India, those outcasts aren't even treated as human. And here's somebody saying, no, you're born in the image of God. You're loved enough that Jesus died for your sins, and you can be forgiven and accepted right now. The kingdom breaks in in those moments. So the kingdom of God is wherever his rule is received. Have you received it? And are you participating in it happening for others around you? Now, I do need to point out, and Jesus does it here too, in the, in the um, verse 12, he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now, there's a footnote in here about the Greek construction, and it can be taken either way. It's not clear, in Matthew, he takes it one way, and Luke, he takes it another way. It's not clear whether people are violently attacking the kingdom of God to stop it and hurt it, but that's certainly a true thing in the world, or if people are so in need of it that they are willing to give anything, they're breaking through the doors violently to get in. They're laying down everything. They're becoming so hungry for God that it's, it's almost like a violent thing to, to get into the kingdom of God. Both things are true. But I think for our sake, it's helpful to recognize this is not going to be a smooth inauguration. It hasn't been for two years, or 2,000 years. It just, the, there, there's going to be a resistance wherever the kingdom is being made manifest. So just expect that. Don't think it's going to be easy for your unbelieving neighbors to come to faith. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be a clash. There's going to be obstacles, and so pray, but expect resistance. Now, when we say that the kingdom is wherever God's rule is received, it's a reminder that there's a choice here. People can choose to reject it or accept it. I think about practical ways to choose the kingdom, and on our men's retreat, we read the Henry Nouwen book, The Way of the Heart, and in there, he tells a story. He's a Catholic priest um, who goes to Calcutta and meets Mother Teresa, and when he's there, he asks her directly, Mother Teresa, what should I do? What advice do you give to me? And she thought about it for a moment, and her advice to him was, I mean, I love the simplicity of this, and this is for him, for Henry Nouwen, not necessarily for you. She said, for you, Spend one hour a day in adoration of Jesus and don't do anything you know is wrong. I think that's really wise advice. I mean, I think it's worth us considering as well because the adoration part has an expulsive power. It's like adore Jesus and everything else will grow pale in comparison. And then trust your conscience and just follow the word, you know? Adore Jesus and then 
then do what seems right to you because the Lord will be leading you. I just like the simplicity of that. And Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all the other stuff will be sorted out. Seek first the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is available now, right now, right here. So we pray like crazy for physical healing. We also pray like crazy for spiritual healing. And we come to him and we, we say, come Lord Jesus, come fully, let your kingdom fully come. So seek first his kingdom, receive his rule, and expect great things from our Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, forgive us for the times when we just get frustrated and stop trying. I do pray that your kingdom would come. I thank you for your power, that you are able to do more than we could ask or imagine. Lord, if there's anyone here who is not submitted to your rule, would you soften their heart? Would you show them how good it is? And Lord, I pray for your church around the world that you would strengthen it. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand.